If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy. We're looking at chapter 1 and uh, studying verses 1 through 14. I see we got Steve Smith here. Good luck today. Uh, hope you do well. 100%, you're 100% ready to go. That's good. Uh, y'all are probably like, all right, Baldy, let's get this show on the road. We've got a football game to watch. So, amen. That's right. <laughs> I was actually talking to Dr. Willis before the, uh, the first service, and he said, Kevin, I don't do too good. You, you don't, don't show me up. I said, are you serious? I mean, the funny preacher against the funny-looking preacher? That's not, that's, that's not going to happen. So, um, but I am excited to, uh, to be here today and appreciate this opportunity to preach. Um, I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine uh, whose name was Tommy Burgess. I met Tommy uh, my first year of ministry at Mount Vernon Baptist Church in Boone, North Carolina, uh, when I was the youth pastor there. Tommy taught Sunday school for me, and um, Tommy was um, uh, the father of three. All three of his kids went through the youth group, and uh, his wife, Candy, uh, they were just such a blessing to me. And um, there were uh, three things that you immediately found out about Tommy. Number one, uh, was that he, he loved the Lord Jesus. And uh, his answering machine, outgoing message, was uh, about Christ. You know, he was just one of these evangelistic, on-fire type personalities. And you, it was unmistakable that Tommy loved Christ. He exuded Christ when you are, were around him. Uh, the second thing that was unmistakable was that he loved his family. Uh, and uh, he was very much involved in his kids' lives, and uh, he loved his family. And the third thing, I know this will please some of you in here this morning, is that he loved Alabama football. He was a crimp. There we go, roll tide. He was a he was a he was a crimson tide through and through. Those are three things that you really understood about Tommy Burgess. Um, well, after uh, I left Mount Vernon and became uh, associate pastor at First Baptist Hudson, uh, Tommy um, got cancer. And Tommy fought cancer for four years. And uh, it was um, amazing, though, to, to see him and hear stories of him, even in that journey of battling cancer, of how much those three things remain constant. His love for the Lord, his love for family, and yes, even his love for the Alabama Crimson Tide. I mean, he had, I don't know if you've got one of these, Eddie, he had these, uh, uh, this jacket. It was crimson and had these white sleeves, looked like one of these letterman jackets. It had a big A on the chest right there. I mean, you could see Tommy coming from a mile away. He was just that much in love uh, with Alabama. But the thing is, his wife loved the Florida Gators. There we go. We got some Gators, a few Gators in the house. Yeah, chomp, chomp. They chomp, chomped about two victories this year, I think. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, great basketball program. Uh, but uh, Tommy and Candy went on uh, with one another all the time about, uh, you know, who was best. They always wanted to have the last word. Uh, and it was fun to hear them, you know, go back and forth like that. Um, but as it was getting close uh, to where um, everybody knew that Tommy was going to die, he was not going to win his battle with cancer, he got with his wife and planned his funeral. And the three things that he wanted really people to know, and in this order about his life is what I've talked about earlier. He loved Jesus, and he loved his family, and he loved Alabama football. 
Even to the point that one of his last requests, or maybe some of his last words, were, you know what? It would be pretty cool if people came to the funeral dressed in crimson and white. (laughs) And most everybody came dressed in crimson and white. But he wanted to make sure uh, that, you know, his family got a chance to speak about him. His father spoke about him. His kids spoke about him. Our pastor spoke about him. And then, and then lastly, his wife spoke about him. And those three things uh, just, just uh, was so evident in the funeral. And I tell people uh, a lot of times that, that the, the most meaningful worship service, one of the most meaningful worship services that I've ever been to was Tony's, uh, Tommy's funeral. It's because I knew that, that, you know, wherever he was going, I knew his priorities. And so it made his funeral service a, a, a true home-going. And you hear oftentimes people say, well, man, that man's life preached his funeral. And that was the case with Tommy. I knew Tommy, and I knew his life. And, and, and these last words really matched up with what, what he wanted to have communicated at his funeral. And so as people spoke, they, they talked about his love for Jesus and how evident that was. And, and as people spoke, you know, especially his kids, his kids said, you know, my dad loved me. My dad loved me so much, but he didn't love me as much as he loved Jesus. He said, uh, uh, Taylor, his son said, you know, my, my dad's love for me was rooted in his love for the Lord Jesus, and it was in that order. And then Candy got up and spoke, and, and it was amazing. And one of the most humorous moments of the funeral uh, was when at the last, she was the last speaker, and this was Tommy's request. She, uh, she, she stood in the pulpit and she said, oh, okay, guys, you've got, to, you've got to go with me on this. She said that Tommy wanted us to say before we left, roll tide. <laughs> so when she counted to three, the whole congregation said, Roll Tide. And then she leaned over the casket and said, Go Gators. (laughs) She had to get that last word in, you know. But Tommy's life was not defined really by his last words. His life was defined by his life. And his last words just accompanied what he was already living. So what is it that people will say about you and I? You know, if, if, if we are living with a sense of urgency, as though I think we should, we should, we should live as though these are our last days, and we should live as though we are speaking our last words. And that's what we find here in, in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy has often been called Paul's last testament, or even Paul's death song. So what is it this morning that you want people to remember about you? What are not only your words communicating, but what is your life communicating? So I hope we're able to understand a few things this morning from this passage of Scripture. So if you would, in honor and reverence of God's Word, please stand with me as we read together 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. 
As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. That it's without any mixture of error. I pray, God, that um, you would use it this morning, your word and your word alone, to communicate your truth. I pray, Father, that we would be obedient to what you would have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Timothy is a book uh, that is written by the Apostle Paul, and he wrote it during uh, his second imprisonment in, in Rome. And it is written and addressed to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. Paul knows that he is facing death, uh, and he so urges Timothy with these last words to stand strong and persevere for the sake of the gospel. And in spite of the suffering he knew was to come, he is encouraging Timothy with his last testament. With these last words, he is encouraging and motivating and inspiring Timothy to do what God has called him to do. That is the setting of uh, 2 Timothy. Because we know also during that time that 2 Timothy was written because Timothy was getting ready to face some harsh persecution for the sake of the gospel. He was going to suffer for the sake of the gospel because there were false teachers that were invading the church. And so Paul is saying, get ready, be ready for it. And so what does he do? He sends him this letter and he says, I have some, some words for you, Timothy, that I want you to know and understand. And this morning I've broken it down into three sections. Hopefully we can understand it and apply it to our lives. But I think the three sections that we're going to look at uh, are the greeting, the motivation, and the exhortation. I believe we will see what uh, was important to Paul and how we can apply these things to our lives as well as we strive to live in the reality found in the words of James 4.14. It reads like this, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So the question is, what are we going to do with the mist of our life? That is, here today and not only gone tomorrow, it's gone today. The grass uh, and, and the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. We're here, but for a, a little while. 
So what are we doing with the last days and the last words that God is giving us to influence others and communicating the gospel? I believe in the, uh, that Paul establishes some important criteria here in, uh, in, in the greeting. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So even in the greeting, I want us to notice a couple of things. Number one, we notice that Paul establishes his authority. Paul establishes his authority even here in the greeting. His authority is established by him saying that that he is an apostle. Now, why is it that, that Paul chose to tell Timothy this? For sure, Timothy already knew that Paul was an apostle. He had been on mission with him. He knew that, that Paul was called uh, not by his own will, but uh, called according to, to God's will. He is simply reminding Timothy, listen, Timothy, I am called by God to do what God has called me to do. And you are called by God to do what God has called you to do. And you can't do it in your own authority. You must go in the strength and in the power of the Almighty. You must go as an apostle of the Lord Jesus. You have got to go in His authority. Paul's calling originated with God, and it ended with God. Timothy, you, it's like Paul was saying, Timothy, you, you can't do what you are called to do in your own strength and in your own authority. You see, in the New Testament, the word apostle carries the connotation of, of ambassador, which is a representative who carries with it uh, the authority of the one he represents. You see, Paul is saying that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I stand in the place of Christ and I speak the words of Christ. I stand in the place of Christ and, and, I, and I preach the words of Christ by the will of Christ. Church, I believe today our call is to herald the good news of Christ, to be his mouthpiece to our children to be his, his mouthpiece into our grandchildren or maybe our, our parents or maybe our, our co-workers or, or whoever is in our circle of influence, we need to herald the good news of Christ and we can't do so in our own strength and we can't do so in our own authority for we must go in the same strength, in the same authority that Paul is encouraging Timothy to go in and we must go in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name alone. I'm reminded of the story in Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is being commissioned to to, to lead the children out of Egypt. And and Moses is saying, but Lord, who am I to say is sending me to do this thing? And God says, you tell them that I am has sent you. So tomorrow when you go and you do what you do, or today and you go and you do what you do with the purpose and the aim of sharing and heralding the news of the gospel, you don't go in your name, you don't go in your strength, you go in the name and in the strength of the great I Am. You go in the name and the strength of the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who died and rose again. He lives inside of you. Therefore, go in his name and herald the good news of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. 
Secondly, I believe in the greeting that Paul establishes his purpose. And the purpose is twofold. Number one is to communicate the gospel. And then number two is to encourage Timothy to live in the fullness of God's grace and his mercy and peace. First, in communicating the gospel, Paul sees it as a privilege and not a burden. How many times do we see that responsibility that way? as a privilege instead of a burden. William Barclay says this about Paul. He says, It is most significant to see what Paul conceived his duty to bring to others. The promise of God, not his threat. To him, Christianity was not the threat of damnation. It was the good news of salvation. It is worth remembering that the greatest evangelist and missionary the world has ever seen was out not to terrify men by the shaking them over the flames of hell, but to move them to an astonished submission at the sight of the love of God. Do you remember that moment in your life? When you were astonished at the sight of the love of God in your life, the love that has covered all of your sin, the love that has given you a home of heaven, and your response was not some some half-hearted prayer, but in response you submitted your life to follow Christ with 100% of everything that you are. Do you remember that, that time in your life when you realized the gospel for what it is? It's good news. I mean, we're not sharing with people bad news. We're sharing with people how we went from death to life. We're sharing with people for how we were a sinner lost and and damned to an eternal hell from being, being saved and having eternal life with someone who loves me. People, that is a, that's good news this morning. And that should motivate us even more to share it because we can't carry the burden of winning somebody to Christ. That is not our responsibility. We are simply heralds of the good news. We, we, we might sow a seed, we might water it, but it is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to, 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 to realize, for us to realize that we're sinners in need of a Savior. It's, it's the Holy Spirit of God that allows us to see that. So that should free us up then to, to fervently and frequently share the message of the good news. Second purpose, according uh, to John MacArthur, is this, is that Timothy is to have the best that God, the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord offers to redeemed sinners. Grace to cover sin, mercy to overrule misery, and peace to dominate life. That's his message to Timothy. Timothy, there's grace to cover sin. There's mercy to cover misery. There's peace that can dominate your life. This morning you may be here and you might might be struggling. And and you're not sure if if you even have a Christ in your life. That moment has not come for you when the veil has been lifted where you're able to see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. What a glorious message of love that, that the God who created me sent. Here's a way, Kevin, for you to escape hell and be in my home of the heaven uh, in heaven for eternity. What a great message that is. My hope and my prayer this morning is that each one of us has come to that realization. But the truth is, I would imagine most of us here in this room are believers and we're Christians. 
But yet, even in that, there are times of misery in our life. Paul's saying to Timothy right here, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Suffering is not fun. But let me tell you something. I've got some good news for you. God's mercy trumps your misery. God's mercy trumps, surpasses, goes beyond your misery. You know, I could not imagine really what misery's like. I couldn't imagine being in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood and looking at his disciples. Jesus said, I am sorrowful even unto the point of death. And that misery continues to his, his trials and that misery continues to the, the physical pain of his beatings and the physical pain and torture of him carrying his cross up the Via Della Rosa. And it continues to where he lays down on Golgotha and, that, and the spikes are nailed in his hands and his feet. I couldn't understand. I can't grasp that kind of misery. And as Jesus hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, bearing the weight of every sin committed forever and ever on him, and his father looking away, can't even look at sin, can't imagine that misery. But Jesus endured his misery so that his mercy could trump our misery. It's great news to know this morning. So if we're serious about living life as though these were our last days, we should live in the confidence that we live our life for God and not in our own strength, but by His authority. And when times of suffering come, we can cast our care upon the one who suffered the most. And His peace can be reflected in our life to a lost and dying world who needs to know that kind of peace. Is that important enough for us this morning to live that way? To communicate that with our very life and also to communicate that with our very words. Secondly, Paul's last words were, were motivating. Look at uh, verses 3 through 5 in our text this morning. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Living a motivated life as well as motivating, motivating others should characterize and be the mark of a true believer. We should live with that kind of sense of urgency. Now, I've already referenced Alabama, so I'm going to give Alabama and Auburn a shot. I know we've got some Auburn Tigers in the house this morning. It may not wind up too good for the Auburn fans, but here we go. It was back when Bear Bryant was the coach for Alabama and Pat Dye was the coach for the Auburn Tigers. Alabama had the lead, a five-point lead, with uh, under two minutes to go. Alabama was in Auburn's territory, and they had the ball. Unfortunately for Alabama, their first-string quarterback got hurt. And so Bear Bryant had to go with his second-string quarterback. 
His second string quarterback was slow, slow afoot, and not very good. And so Bear Bryant calls him uh, to himself before he goes out to the huddle to call the play. He said, listen, son, whatever you do, do not throw the ball. Sounds like my coach's instructions to me as I was a quarterback at South Caldwell. Son, whatever you do, don't throw it. Just don't mess it up, right? <laughs> he said, listen, if it, we'll just run the ball four times, and then we'll depend on our defense to win the game for us. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. He runs to the huddle, and he calls the play, and then uh, first down, bang, Auburn smears him. Second down, Auburn stops him. Third down, Auburn stops him again. And on fourth down, the quarterback remembers his coach's instruction and says, I'm going to run the ball, I'm going to run the ball, I'm going to run the ball. He goes back to hand it off, and guess what? He fumbles the ball. And so he, he picks the ball up, and he's scrambling around, you know, I guess in a frantic uh, pace, knowing not what to do. But he looks in the end zone, and he sees his wide receiver wide open. So he ignores his coach's instruction, and he heaves the ball to the end zone. What he did not see was the fastest man on both teams was playing defensive back for Auburn. And that guy ran in front of that pass and intercepted the ball. Now, could you imagine what that quarterback was feeling at that moment? Oh, no, I'm in trouble so the Auburn guy started taking off as fast as he could go. And really, there was only one man to meet. And it was that slow-footed second-string quarterback, you know? The kind of quarterback like my dad said about me. He said, there's my son. He plays quarterback. He's off a little, but he's slow. <laughs> that was me. So I can relate. But somehow, somehow, that slow-footed second-string quarterback called up to the Auburn defensive back and tackled him, and Alabama won the game. After the game, the coaches exchanged a greeting at midfield. They shake hands with one another, and Coach Dye said, Coach Bryant, I read the scouting report, and, and I knew that your second-string quarterback was slow afoot. How in the world did he catch up? How in the world did he catch up with the fastest guy in the, on the field? He said, well, your guy was running for the goal line. Your guy was running for a touchdown." My guy was running for his life. <laughs> it's an amazing thing uh, what we can do when we are motivated, right? Are we motivated to do what God has called us to do? Really? Are we motivating others to do what God has called them to do? But Paul motivated Timothy, and this is how he motivated him. First, he showed appreciation for him. Look with me in verse 3. It says, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Paul is showing genuine appreciation for Timothy. Now, we need to think about Paul's circumstances as he is writing this letter, okay? You know, uh, today's a beautiful day, sunny outside, and, and we, we are in this beautiful building protected from the elements, and it's easy to go from one aisle to the next to say, man, I, I encourage you, I appreciate you. And people actually have come to me this morning and, 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 and said those things. And now, let me tell you something, that's encouraging, and it's motivating. Keep doing it for one another. But Timothy and Paul, uh, they're not in here. 
Paul's not on this side of the congregation. Timothy's not on this side of the congregation. Paul was in the middle of a deep, dark, nasty dungeon awaiting his death from an evil Roman emperor. He's beside prisoners that, that, that are really prisoners and thieves. But Paul doesn't deserve this. He was just simp- simply heralding the good news of Christ. And he finds himself in this state of suffering. But where are his thoughts? His thoughts are not on his suffering. His thoughts are not on the very fact that he's getting ready to die. His thoughts are on his Lord and Savior, his Redeemer. His thoughts are on his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, Timothy, let me encourage you. Let me motivate you. Let me appreciate you with these words. Now think about how much more motivated Timothy was at the thought, my good friend is in prison. And in the midst of his suffering, he's thinking about me. He's thinking about me. When my friend Tommy was sick, he took frequent trips to Houston, Texas, to the cancer center for treatment. And it was reported how much of an encouragement Tommy was to all the doctors and nurses who treated him. You know, it's easy to motivate others when our circumstances are favorable. It's easy to do that. But when circumstances are unfavorable, I wonder if we have that same desire, an intense, fervent desire to motivate others around us to do what God has called them to do. To be appreciated the way Paul appreciated Timothy could only serve as an encouragement and motivation and give him the confidence to do what God had called him to do. Who is it that you're thankful for this morning? Who is it that you need to motivate this morning by showing your appreciation for them? I hope and pray that my last days will be focused on motivating those around me to live out the calling that God has put on their life. I hope and pray I stay motivated to continue to live out the call that God has put on my life. But we can't do that if we are focused on our pain and focused on our suffering. Secondly, Paul motivated Timothy by affirming him as well. Look at verse 5. It says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So here we see Paul affirming Timothy of his faith. And when we cross-reference this verse, we land at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. We learn what sincere faith looks like by these verses. It reads like this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is the definition of sincere faith. I guess the obvious question for us this morning is, does that describe who we are? I mean, would Paul write a letter to us and say, Kevin, I am reminded of your sincere faith. I hope and pray that he would, because if he did that and, 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 and we are reminded by other fellow believers that we do have sincere faith, I think it would stir us up to do and continue to do what God has called us to do. Sincere faith. I've been uh, an upper basketball coach. I've been a head coach for six years of my basketball team. And this year, the seventh year, my team finally has a really good head coach. It's Lenora Barron. It's not me. She's the head coach. I'm just sitting on the sideline saying, yes, ma'am, I do what you want me to do. She's a real coach. I mean, I I knew that we were in for a change when at the first practice, uh, she blows the whistle and the guys come walking over to her and she goes, don't you walk on my court. You better run and jump to it when I say get there. And if you miss a layup, you're going to be doing 10 push-ups. Well, I was so excited, I started doing layups and push-ups. I was like, come on, let's go. Let's get this show on the road. During our first game, she calls one of our players out. And she gives him a little something-something for not playing defense. She says, listen, son, you're playing offense, but you're taking off on defense. You're not doing what you've been told to do. You're not doing what you've been coached to do. I've seen you do it in practice, and I've seen you do it in a practice game. You need to sit down there and think about it. And I was like, yes, ma'am. Oh, you're talking to the player, not talking to me. I mean, she had me pumped up. I was ready to go in and play some defense, right? Well, as he sits out for a while and stews on that a little bit, he gets back in the game. He goes and he steals the ball three times in a row. He was motivated by his coach. He was affirmed that he could do what he had been taught in practice. And he wound up being our defensive player of the game for that game. After the game, we're in, the, uh, in our little room and we're giving out our awards. And uh, he got the defensive player uh, of the game award. And, and then she took a moment just to explain. She goes, you know what? Listen. If I'm not getting on your player, and the moment I stop getting on your player is the moment that I stop seeing the potential in you. And I see the parents writing that down saying, man, I need to tell that to my kids. I see the potential in you cleaning your room. I see the potential in you washing the dishes. I see a lot of potential in you. Boy, that's that's affirming, right? Who is it today that you need to affirm? Who is it today that you need to give a boost of confidence to? Because not only does affirmation and appreciation uh, come with, with words of kindness. Sometimes it's hard to affirm somebody and help straighten them back up to walk on the way that God has told them to walk. Be an encourager. Be a motivator. Someone who affirms others to courageously walk with Christ and follow Him at all costs. 
Last this morning, we see some powerful words in Paul's exhortation to Timothy. In his exhortation, Paul reminds him, now this is important, Paul reminds Timothy that you're going to suffer for the gospel. You're going to suffer for the gospel, so the gospel is worth suffering for. Pick up in verse 8 where the text says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. What is it about the gospel that should make us say the gospel is worth suffering for? Number one, it's the gospel of salvation. It's the gospel that saves us. It's the gospel that rescues us. It's the gospel that liberates us and breaks the chains and patterns of sin in our life. It is the gospel that assures for us our home in heaven for all eternity. And get this. We did and we will never do anything to deserve it. We are unworthy of it. God just simply lavishes it out on us to show off His great name. To show off His love. It's not how good we can be to be in the kingdom of God. It's how good God is to allow us into His kingdom by sending us His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. The gospel is worth suffering for because it is the gospel of salvation. Titus 3 says... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs of eternal life. If it weren't for salvation... Suffering would be a tragedy. But we know that those who are in Christ will only suffer for a little while. And even yet in our suffering, we are assured the presence of peace in our life. Peace that passes all understanding. But that suffering will soon come to an end. And that is why we were able to rejoice and really worship at the funeral of Tommy Burgess. It's because we knew how he lived his life. We knew how he suffered well through his tragic situation of cancer. We knew that his priorities were love of the Lord Jesus, love of of his family, and then I guess love of Alabama football. I don't know. But the priorities of having a relationship with Christ through his shed blood on the cross helps us live for the next day. Helps us put one foot in front of the other and go on in His strength and His grace and His authority. Well, the gospel is worth suffering for because it's also the gospel of power. We need to keep in mind here that, and I learned this as I was studying for this message, that 
Paul is writing this in the great age of suicide. Had no idea about that. I, I thought, you know, today would be, right? But there was a group um, called the Stoics. They were ancient thinkers. They had their own way out when life became intolerable. They had a saying, God gave men life, but God gave men the still greater gift of being able to take their own lives away. What a tragic and sad way to view life. You see, the gospel was and is power. Power to conquer self. Power to master our circumstances. Power to go on living when life seems unlivable. Power to be a Christian when being a Christian looks impossible. You know, being a Tar Hill fan these days, pretty hard. 0-3 in the conference. Amen. Oh, that's not amen. That's a bad. I mean, we're playing like NC State. I mean. <laughs> you know, Tar Hill fans are going to start bringing out the bags, putting them over their head, you know. I'm a Tar Hill fan, you know. But when you think of it, though, really in all seriousness, in the reality of what we have as believers, think about this for a second. Paul knew in, in the center of a dungeon, cell, getting ready to face execution, that he had on the inside of him the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who is victorious over all, that made his suffering bearable. Because he had the power of the Most High God living inside of him. Last this morning, the gospel is worth suffering for because it is the gospel of consecration. You see, the gospel not only saves us, it consecrates us and makes us more like Christ. Philippians 1.6 says this, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The gospel that saves us is the gospel that makes us more like Christ. And that is a process. It will take a lifetime. We need to know and understand this morning that along the way, there's going to be bumps and we're going to fall. We are going to fail. But it's not our goodness in the first place that, that saved us. It's the goodness of God that has saved us. We need to understand, though, that when we fail, we have a great advocate in our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to illustrate this like Matt Chandler does in the explicit gospel. He tells the story of his baby learning to walk, and we probably can all imagine this. We've been there, and, you know, y'all will be there later. You all right? Just go with me. But as you, as you see your baby grow, you see your baby sit up, and then, and then you see your baby stand up, and then when they stand up, they might grab the side of a table, and they start, you know, bobbing their knees just a little bit. They're like, okay, something, something's got to follow. Something's got to follow. Something's coming up. And you see that, and you know what they're getting ready to do. They're getting ready to take their first step. And then when they take their first step, it's followed by a second step and a third step. And then all of a sudden, their heavy head just leans them forward, and they boom, 
bam, they fall. And you don't look at them and say, I can't believe you just fail. What are you thinking? You fell down. No, what do we do? We get our phone out and we take pictures and put it on Facebook and tweet it. My son, my daughter just took five steps. I wonder how that would change our worship. If we viewed God that way. That's my servant Kevin down there. He took five steps. He fell down. I'm going to pick him up. I'm going to forgive him. I'm going to send him on his way. We've got to live in the confidence that the gospel is the gospel of consecration. We've got to know and understand, church, that we're going to fail. We're going to fail. But the greater truth is this, that the advocate who sits at the right hand of God Almighty is on your side. Church, are we living in a way this morning that gives evidence of the gospel in our life? That we've been a redeemed person. That we have received the the message of the gospel. We've been forgiven of our sin. And we're heralding the good news. Or is there anyone here, here this morning that's still lost in your sin? Why? Why leave this place this morning lost in your sin? Jesus loves you. He wants to save you. He has the power to save you. He will save you. Come to Him this morning. Christian, are you living in such a way that these might be your last days? That you're, in essence, preaching your funeral. That you're living in the authority of God. You're living commissioned by Him to herald the good news of Christ to those around you. Are you appreciative and affirming of of others to to do the same thing as well? I pray that this morning that you will be obedient to what the Lord is telling you to do during His invitation. I'm going to pray Pastor Scott will be here at the front and you be obedient to the Lord as, as, as we have our invitation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the promise of salvation and that it is nothing that we do to earn it, but it is the free gift of God and that we receive it by faith. Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. God, I pray that if there's one here within the sound of my voice this morning that knows you not, that they would not leave here without first getting that right. And God, I pray for the Christian in this room this morning. I ask God that 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 we would live with a sense of urgency, to live a motivated life, to live a life that is set aside to loving you and serving you and motivating others to do that as well. God, I pray that your will would be accomplished during this time of invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.